Amen. Amen. Well, please, if you would, uh, if you're so inclined to turn to Genesis chapter 42, Genesis chapter 42, and if you're using a Bible in the seat in front of you, Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, and uh, so you just go there and then find chapter 42. That's where we're going to be this morning, God's surprising and searching mercy. And I would also echo what Tim shared earlier, happy Mother's Day to those of you who are mothers. And even as we express that, we recognize that in our world, it's not always a happy Mother's Day. And we know that for many, uh, for any number of different reasons, it can be a very hard, very painful, very difficult time. And so wherever you may be in that, we trust that you will know God's blessings. We trust that you'll know God's care, that you'll know God's faithfulness within the things that he has ordained. And so uh, we're just glad that you're here this morning. Well, Genesis 42 is where we are at, God's surprising, searching mercy. Let me lead us in prayer as we look to God's word. Our Father, you are the beauty of perfection. You're the one who calls us continually to taste and see that you are good. And you've made us to know you and to find true joy and delight in walking with you, and to magnify the riches of your great mercy to sinners such as us. And so we pray that you would grant us to hear and to see and to gladly feed on what you have for us now in your word. Father, please empower me to preach your word faithfully and clearly through the power of your Holy Spirit. Please do your work among us for our good and for your glory in Jesus Christ, even as we pray in his name, amen and amen. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, we're not going to go look back there necessarily, but it's there in Genesis 12 that we learn of the beginnings of God's promise plan to bring his blessings of salvation to undeserving sinners. God chooses to bless the nations through a man named Abraham and his offspring. And God's promise plan then advances through Abraham's son Isaac and Isaac's son Jacob. And then in chapter 37, the story really zooms in on Jacob's 12 sons, especially his most favored son, Joseph. Well, Joseph, we find out there in chapter 37, is violently hated by his jealous brothers who sell him in slavery, into slavery, down into Egypt, where he's then falsely accused, he's thrown down into a prison pit, and he's forgotten. But in a shocking turn of events, by God's mighty providence, in time, Joseph is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh. And he becomes a global leader during a worldwide famine, as the end of chapter 41 tells us there in verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so in chapters 37 to 41, what's revealed there is how God brought Joseph through suffering and groaning into glory. Well, now in chapter 42, which is some 22 years after Joseph first arrived in Egypt as an abused slave, 
In chapter 42, the focus turns to God's dealings with Joseph's brothers and his father in the land of Canaan, which is northeast of Egypt. So let's hear the living word of God Almighty. I'll start in verse 1 and read the whole chapter of chapter 42. So verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. He said to him, no, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we are your servants. Our, our, we are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. 
And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? And when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, son of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this you shall, I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. Verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Well, strange as it sounds, this is a story about God's surprising, searching mercy about his surprising, searching mercy. Now, chapter 42 is the first scene of this part of the story, which is going to extend through chapter 47. Now, as I made reference to, chapters 37 to 41 told us how really God brought Joseph to power in Egypt. And now chapters 42 to 47 are going to tell us how God brings Joseph's family, his father Jacob and all of his brothers and their families, how God brings all of them to dwell in Egypt. And with every twist and turn of what unfolds, it is all about God's, un, or God's surprising and searching mercy. It's about God extending extravagant mercy to sinful, distressed, helpless human beings. And not just to the people in the story, dear friends, but it's about how God extends His lavish mercy to you and to me and to all who would receive it. 
Now, the central truth that we learn from Genesis 42 can really be summarized in two words. Here it is. God knows. God knows. And through what God reveals here in his dealings with Joseph and Joseph's brothers and their father Jacob, what we see are three realities that God Almighty knows for every single one of us. And so that's the focus of chapter 42, really. God knows. And that's what we're going to look at are these three realities. Now, I need to tell you as we get into this, going through these three realities in the chapter is probably going to feel a lot like going to the dentist, if you will. Only worse, but only better if you'll receive it. In other words, just like going to the dentist, you might even now feel a little bit of apprehension as you settle into your chair for the journey, nervous perhaps about what may happen. And as things move along, as we move through uh, what we find in Genesis 42, you're probably going to hear and even feel some things that may hurt, and they may hurt a lot. Not so much in your mouth as at the dentist, but in your soul. But just like when you patiently submit to a skilled, caring dentist's work, it's all going to be really, really good at the end. If you're willing to receive and respond to what God has. So trust Him. Submit to His good, wise work in the things that He sets before us here. But be ready. So let's begin with this first reality that God knows. The first reality that God knows. It is this. God knows you and all your sin. God knows you and all your sin. Now inherent to this whole chapter, really to the whole of Scripture, is the reality that God is all-knowing. He is omniscient, and with all-knowing power and authority, God has been governing everything and everyone that we have found in the book of Genesis up to this point. In other words, this is the same all-knowing God who knew of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, though they tried in vain to hide from Him. This is the same all-knowing God who knew that Cain had murdered his brother Abel in Genesis 4. This is the same all-knowing God who saw that every intention of the thoughts of mankind's hearts was only evil continually, as we're told in Genesis chapter 6, which led to God bringing a global flood of judgment. This is the same all-knowing God who knew the proud, rebellious hearts of people in Genesis chapter 11 when he confused their language. And it's the same all-knowing God who knew the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and rained down judgment on those cities in Genesis chapter 19. And it's the same God, the same all-knowing God who perfectly knew the lives of Abraham and Isaac. And this same all-knowing God perfectly knew the lives of the sin, and the sins of Jacob and of his sons who were Joseph's brothers. 
You see, God knew the jealous hate that these brothers had for Joseph and what they did to him. And God knew how they had lied to Jacob. And God knew the proud and selfish and fearful favoritism of Jacob, first for Joseph, and which he has now placed on his son Benjamin because of Joseph being gone. God knew all of that. And beloved, this same all-knowing God, he does not change. He still sovereignly governs everything and everyone with perfect knowledge. This means that he perfectly knows me and all of my sins. And he perfectly knows you and all of your sins. He knows all of our sinful words, our sinful actions, our sinful thoughts, our sinful desires, our sinful motives, and the sinful intentions of our hearts. God perfectly knows everything. And there's no escaping his knowledge. There is no hiding from him. And this is what we heard read earlier, correct, in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, that the living word of God accurately penetrates and cuts, it discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And verse 13 there in chapter 4 goes on to say, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is what King David declared in Psalm 33, verses 13 to 15, when he says, The Lord, Yahweh, looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. You notice the comprehensiveness of what David declares there. And then even more personally, in Psalm 139, David declares this at the beginning of the psalm, O Lord Yahweh, he says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Yahweh, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Beloved, the unchanging God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And he's like the skilled eye of a dentist with a high-tech x-ray machine who sees and knows the truth about what's going on in your mouth. Of course, in a far greater way, God sees and knows the truth about our lives and about what goes on in our hearts. And so this is reality, and it's inherent to what we find in chapter 42. God knows you, and he knows all your sin. Well, this leads to a second reality that we see emerge in chapter 42, and it is this. Number two, God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt. God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt. Now, we're drilling deeply here, and I promise it'll get better if we'll receive it. But we need to hear this point. God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt. 
And this is what God is so evidently doing through the whole scene in chapter 42. What he's doing is he's awakening the consciences of Joseph's brothers. And he's doing so with distressing guilt because of their sin. Now remember, this is some 22 years after these brothers had committed their vicious, hateful crime against Joseph. And after they had lied to their father about his demise as Genesis chapter 37 reports to us. And mark it well, friends, please mark it well. The passage of time does not erase or remove our guilt. Whether we've sinned 20 minutes ago, or whether it was 20 or 40 or 60 years ago, there's only one way that our guilt can be removed. And it is not the passage of time. Now for Joseph's brothers, God works powerfully and he works skillfully to awaken their consciences to the guilt of their decades-old sins, sins which they had never owned up to. God worked through their circumstances, the circumstances of a worldwide famine that he caused And then the directive from their father that they quit doing nothing and that they go buy grain in Egypt. You see, God is the one orchestrating all of this. And of course, God had sovereignly worked to make Joseph governor over all. And so the brothers come and they bow down before him who is now Lord of the land. And in so bowing, they're dramatically fulfilling the very dreams that God had given to the then teenage Joseph back in Genesis chapter 37. And then as that begins to unfold, God methodically awakens their consciences through the unexpected, rough, and relentless accusations and actions from Joseph. And we're told they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. And so in the fear of God, as Joseph says at one point, he speaks and he acts towards them with severity and yet, as we'll see, with surprising and searching mercy. Now, if you think about it, and you think about all that these brothers did to Joseph and and what followed after all that they did of all of the injustices and pain and suffering and groaning that Joseph suffered before God brought him to exaltation at the right hand of Pharaoh, in view of all that they did, it is amazing that Joseph doesn't exact revenge on his brothers at that instance, doing unto them as they had done unto him. But rather, and though with skillful roughness that brings them face to face with their guilt, Joseph actually shows them great kindness and compassion. And what he's doing is verifying the integrity of their hearts, the integrity of what they claim to be honest, the integrity ultimately of their repentance. And so Joseph is persistently accusing them of being spies. And he steadily questions the integrity of their claim of being honest men. 
And he threatens them with death if they're found to be lying. And he wants verification of the integrity of their hearts. He also wants verification that his brother Benjamin is still alive. And so he orders them that they must bring Benjamin to Joseph. And then, after imprisoning them for three days, perhaps giving them a small taste of his own imprisonment, likely being put in the very same prison pit where he had been, and of course in those days giving them some time to think about their guilt, Joseph then says that one brother must remain confined while the others take grain for their households and then return with Benjamin. And then it's at this point that Joseph's God-fearing words awaken the brothers' consciences. As he says to them in verse 21, and, or as they say in verse 21, not knowing that Joseph could understand, they say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. It's like a light bulb went off in their consciences of what had happened 22 years earlier, and they realized that they're now experiencing retributive justice. And then Reuben, who had tried to save Joseph, really intensifies their guilt all the more by saying, now there comes a reckoning for his blood. You see, over all these 22 years, they had been living on borrowed credit. But finally, payment is coming due. You see, time does not erase the debt of guilt. In reality, it only multiplies the intensity of the guilt. Well, Joseph is moved to tears of compassion for his brothers. Again, they don't know that he's understood what they've said. And so after he binds Simeon before their eyes, what he actually does is lavishes them with grain and provisions for their journey back to Canaan. He wants to provide for them and for their families. And he also has every man's money, and this would have been the currency of silver. He has every man's silver returned to their sacks, and they had apparently already given this money as payment for the grain. Now, as this is spoken of in chapter 42, it's not clear here whether this is a part of Joseph's trap for them or whether he's just being generous. But because of what we learn later in chapter 43, specifically verses 18 to 23, and I won't take time to go there now, but it seems apparent that Joseph is actually being generous and kind in placing their money, their silver, back in their sacks. And I think it's an example of how God uses kindness. He uses undeserved kindness to bring people to repentance. Even as Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. However, when the brothers discover the money in their sacks, first on their journey and later in Jacob's presence, we're told their hearts fail and they tremble with fear. They're certain this is just going to secure their guilt in Joseph's eyes. And so the distress of their guilt multiplies. And no doubt the silver itself 
instantly reminded them of the dirty silver that they received when they sold Joseph to slave traders some 22 years earlier. And so what we find here is that the brother's distress really goes from bad to worse when Jacob refuses to let them return to Egypt with Benjamin. That's what happens at the end of chapter 42. And really what's given us here is just a picture of an amazingly broken and dysfunctional family. The dialogue here at the end of the chapter shows Jacob arrogantly, selfishly favoring Benjamin over the others whom Jacob Jacob had essentially disenfranchised all of his other sons. And then Reuben's somewhat irrational offer is coldly rejected by Jacob who really digs in his heels, and he's in essence blaming his sons for all that has come upon him. And by his resistance, think about this, by his resistance to letting Benjamin go, Jacob is effectively saying, I would rather all of us starve to death here during the famine than risk losing my son Benjamin. It's insane. It's irrational, which is the nature of, of sin and guilt. As Derek Kidner observes, Jacob has a suicidally defensive posture. Well, friends, do you see how all of these God-ordained circumstances, including Joseph's rough accusations and actions, coupled with Jacob's stubborn, angry resistance, it awakens the guilty consciences of Joseph's brothers. Again, they had committed heinous crimes against both Joseph and Jacob, and they had lived all these years, but now everything was coming back on them. It's as Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. It's also as Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he reap. And indeed, Joseph's brothers were reaping a harvest of distressing guilt. King David understood this experience, didn't he? When God used the prophet Nathan to awaken David's conscience with guilt over his sins of adultery, murder, and deceit. We find that in 2 Samuel chapter 12. The apostle Peter also understood this experience, didn't he, when Jesus used the crowing of a rooster to awaken Peter's conscience with guilt for his sins of denying Christ. God knows how to awaken our consciences with distressing guilt. I certainly understand that experience at times. I wonder if you understand that experience. God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt. Unresolved guilt for real sins against God and real sins against others is a real, heavy, and terrifying burden that time does not erase. We can run, but we cannot hide from God, the one to whom we must give an account. And friends, this is reality. 
There's only one way that real guilt for real sins can be fully and permanently removed. And this brings us to the third reality that we see emerging and unfolding in Genesis 42. We're near the end of the dentist appointment, if you will. Here it is, reality number three. God knows how to save you with his surprising, searching mercy. God knows you and all your sin. God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt. And God knows how to save you with his surprising, searching mercy. Now it's interesting, isn't it, that Genesis 42 really ends on a very unsettled and ominous note, doesn't it? It ends with the distressing guilt of Joseph's brothers just sort of hanging there. It's unresolved. And it ends with this guilty, broken family being in a humanly impossible, desperately hopeless situation. Real crushing guilt for the brothers coupled with destructive, immobilizing division between father and sons and leaving then the whole family apparently stuck in Canaan, waiting to die from the famine. That's how the chapter ends. Well, praise God, we know it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story for Jacob, nor for Joseph's brothers, all of Jacob's sons, nor for God's promised plan to bring his blessings of salvation to the nations through this chosen family. Now, what we're going to see in the story ahead is that though it is severe and sobering, God is actually working through circumstances, and he's working through Joseph to extend his surprising, searching mercy to Jacob, and to all of his sons. And God is working in this and through this to extend this same surprising and searching mercy through them to all the nations, beloved, through them to you and I, if we would receive it. Now, I call this God's surprising mercy because it's surprising that God is so merciful to such rebellious sinners like Jacob and Joseph's brothers. And ultimately, it's surprising that he's merciful to anyone like you or me, isn't it? And it's surprising how God works to bring sinners to his mercy. It's also through his skillful roughness, as we've seen with Joseph, but also with deep compassion with deep generosity, with deep kindness poured out from him to those who hated him and to those who rejected him and to those who sought to destroy him. It's God's severe mercy that we see manifest in Joseph, surprising as it is. And oh, how God searches and how he finds the objects of his mercy, even as he sought and found Joseph's brothers and Jacob, and even as God searches and finds you and me. And how God then, when he gets a hold of us, wonderfully, soberly, sometimes severely, he searches our hearts, and he exposes 
but then cleanses the consciences of all to whom he is merciful. So his mercy is surprising and it is searching, but it is abundant and it is rich. Now here's what's so amazing in all of this, and I'm, I'm anticipating things we're going to see in chapters 43 and following. But here's what's amazing, and here's how all of this ultimately pictures and anticipates the coming of the greater Joseph, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's what we're finding in Genesis. God saved Joseph from the bondage of his suffering in order to use him to save Joseph's family from the bondage of their sin. How amazing is that? God saved Joseph from the bondage of his suffering in order to use Joseph to save his family from the bondage of their sin. You see, God sent Joseph at the hands of his sinful family to save his sinful family. And amazingly, through their wickedness, God was working sovereignly, mercifully, to deliver his people from the impossible bondage of their wickedness. And thus God worked to preserve his people and to preserve his promised plan. Again, not just for them as individuals, but for his promised plan to bring blessing to the nations. And in all of this, God demonstrated that if sinful, distressed, helpless people are going to be saved, He alone, He alone has to make it happen. And He does make it happen. And so again, just think about it. At the end of chapter 42, God's chosen people are in a humanly impossible, desperately hopeless place. They are in bondage to their sin and to their guilt, and there is no way out. They're stuck. But God, but God, oh, what mercy. And so God's saving, comforting mercy is going to blossom more in chapter 43 and following. And let me have you just peek ahead over to chapter 45 for just a couple of moments. Here when Joseph finally reveals himself, to his troubled brothers. Listen to what Joseph says in chapter 45, verse 5 and following. He says to them, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So he says in verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. How amazing is this? God saved Joseph from the bondage of his suffering in order to use him to save Joseph's family from the bondage of their sin. 
And in order to preserve and advance God's promised plan to bring the blessing of salvation to undeserving sinners from all the nations. Beloved, look at what these brothers had done to Joseph in their sin. But look at what God did for them through Joseph in his mercy. And then as you look at that, consider what we do to Jesus in our sin. But look at what God has done for us through Jesus in his mercy. Beloved, this is the hope of the gospel. You see, these are realities. God knows. God knows you and he knows all of your sins. And God knows how to awaken your conscience with distressing guilt because of your sins. And God knows how to save you with his surprising and his searching mercy. His mercy comes not finally through Joseph, but ultimately through the infinitely greater Joseph, through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it is through faith in Jesus Christ that we find and learn and experience the only way the only way that our real guilt for real sins can be fully and permanently removed. And in the same way that God had sent Joseph ahead to preserve God's chosen people and his promises, so God sent Jesus for all who would believe on him. God's merciful salvation is found in Christ alone. Even as we sang earlier, all we have is Christ, and He is enough. He is enough for the forgiveness of our sins, the removal of our guilt, the cleansing of our consciences, and that for all eternity, for all who believe. And so we find in the New Testament, for instance, the Apostle Peter preaching in Acts chapter 2, preaching to many of the very exact people who had conspired to murder Jesus. Peter declares in verses 23 and 24 there, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Think of it, the very ones, the very one that they sought to destroy is the one whom God raised up to mercifully save them and any who would believe. And so a little bit later in chapter 2, Peter will go on to say in verses 38 and 39, responding to many of these very people who were cut to the heart with the distressing guilt that they knew because of their sins, Peter would say, repent. When they cried out, what shall we do? He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off and everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's the hope of the gospel to repent, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism, as Peter speaks of it there, is not a means of being saved. He's coupling that together to indicate that it is the the means by which we give testimony of having repented and believed on Christ. Baptism doesn't save. Believing on Christ is the means by which he saves us. Baptism expresses that testimony. 
Well, if you've known the experience in your own life of God wisely, compassionately, even if perhaps roughly bringing you to the place of desperate hopelessness, bringing you to the place where there is no possible human solution to deliver you from your sin and your distressing guilt, then know that you're in the right place to receive his merciful, permanent salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, only Jesus permanently forgives and removes our sin and our guilt. Only Jesus permanently cleanses and restores our consciences to know peace and joy and hope in the riches of God's mercy to us in Him. And so come, sinners, come and keep coming to Him again and again and again and again through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing promises such as, and I'll close with this, in 1 John 1 verses 7 to 9, we hear if we walk in the light as He, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen and amen. That is our hope. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your surprising and searching mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even as we see it displayed and anticipated in these events, in your dealings with Joseph and his brothers and with their father Jacob, we know that all that is transpiring there is not only having a role and an impact in in those people's lives, but it's connected with your promise plan to bring the blessing of your salvation through Jesus to all the nations. Father, may we live in the hope of knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that our guilt is forgiven and removed, knowing that our consciences have been cleansed. And if there are any matters at all that we need to confess to you, and perhaps even instances where we have uh, specifically sinned against others, that we need to do what you would have us to do make right, please enable us to be resolved to do so and to keep short accounts with you and to walk in all the joy, in all the hope, in all the peace that you offer to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your truth, and we thank you for your surprising, searching mercy. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen.